Introduction Part 3 of Commentary in the Gospel of John Book 9 by Cyril of Alexandria Translated by Rev. Thomas Randall This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 19. From henceforth I tell you before it come to pass that, when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. I have been led on, he says, by very urgent reasons to give you, even before the time, this account of the events that will very shortly happen. For it will gratify those who hear me, and bring them no slight advantage, if they know my aim in the matter. For to be recklessly wasteful in the use of words in meaningless dissertations is contrary to my custom and pleasure but whatsoever seems likely to be fraught with no slight profit to you provided you have knowledge of it this i feel constrained to instill in your ears from henceforth therefore he says i tell you things that are even now at the doors and i implant in you the knowledge of things not yet fulfilled that when the time for their occurrence has come you may be able to harmonize the final issues of the matters with the prophecies uttered by me, and so may believe that I am he concerning whom the divine scripture has uttered such oracles. At one and the same time, therefore, our Lord Jesus the Christ wisely attempts to correct the traitor, putting forward his rebuke in a form concealed under slight obscurities, as well as to show that the issue of the treachery would be a sure sign and most clear indication of the fact that he is christ for as we have already said by anticipation any one who compared the utterances recorded from old time in the sacred scripture with the daring deeds of the traitor would perceive i think very clearly and without difficulty that their interpretation in reference to him was certainly and very evidently true. 20. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. Having previously shown in a manner suitable to the occasion that he is the Christ, and having indicated the means by which the traitor was meditating his grievous outrage against him he now devises another very effectual method for overthrowing his evil designs and now again his discourse seems to be marked by a certain want of distinctness for he is still trying to conceal the daring deed and as yet does not openly say who is about to betray him he proves, therefore, and that very effectually by a clear illustration, that it is absolutely necessary to consider the person of God the Father as included in the object of the love and reverence shown to himself. And yet the main object that he wishes here to demonstrate is surely not this, but rather, perhaps, in my opinion, exactly the converse. For leaving, as seems probable, the plainer negative form of speech which he used at other times as for example in the words he that honoureth not the son honoureth not the father he has here passed to the milder positive form of expression intending all the while that his hearers should from this infer the converse for surely it was a time for threatening rather than for exhortation 
when the deed was already at the doors, and when the grievous outrage against him was already in course of preparation. For Satan had already planted the evil design in the heart of the traitor. As, therefore, he says, a man would certainly acknowledge me in my own person and not another, if he received one who had been sent by me. Even so, he that received one sent forth by God the Father would in all likelihood receive the Father himself. But in these words of Christ, any one may perceive the meaning indicated, seeing through the mildness of the language. And turning the statement into its converse, the traitor's impiety will be seen to be a transgression, not only against the Son, but also against even the Father himself. The language used is therefore a form of threatening, though couched in somewhat mild terms, and it conveys the same idea that words of foreboding would properly suggest. For even as one among ourselves will receive one sent by God, assenting to the words he speaks, and paying honor to the God of whom he preaches by observing the divine oracles he proclaims, on just the same grounds, I think, one would receive the Lord, and through him the Father, by believing on the Son. For the manifestation of the parent is ever the natural office of the offspring. So he who has fully believed that Christ is the Son, thereby fully confesses the God who begat the Son. Terrible, therefore, is the sentence pronounced on the traitor, since his rebellious insult is even against God the Father, because so much is involved in his impious outrage against the Son. For if with unswerving faith he had acknowledged the Son to be God of God, he would then have accepted and reverenced him, submitting heart and soul in sincerity to him as to the Lord. And then would the wretched man have found his love to Christ stronger than base passions nor, methinks, would he, by being found guilty of treachery, have made it true concerning himself that it would have been better for him if he had never at all been born. 21. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in the spirit, and testified, and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Who is there among living men who would not feel plainly convinced that our human faculties are incapable of supplying either ideas or words which may at all express, in an irreproachable and infallible manner, the attributes peculiar to that nature which is both divine and ineffable? Therefore we depend on the words of which our faculties are capable, as a feeble medium of expressing such things as pass our understanding. For how can we speak with clear fullness on a subject that really transcends the very limits of our comprehension? We are compelled, therefore, to take the feebleness of human phrases as a faint image of the true ideas, and then to endeavor to pass onward, as far at least as circumstances will allow, to realize the peculiarities of the divine attributes. The divine nature is exceedingly terrible in uttering reproofs, and is stirred to violent emotion by unmingled hatred of evil, against whomsoever the divine decree may have determined that this feeling is justly due, 
and this in spite of immeasurable long-suffering. Whenever, therefore, the divine scripture wishes to express God's emotion against impious designs of whatever kind, it derives its language, as on other occasions, from expressions in use among us, and in human phraseology speaks of anger and wrath. Although the divine essence is subject to none of these passions in any way that bears comparison with our feelings, but is moved to indignation, the extent of which is known only to itself and is natural to itself alone, for the ways of God are utterly unspeakable. But the divine scripture, as we have said, is wont to record things too great for us in accordance with human fashion. Therefore here also the inspired evangelist says that Christ was troubled in the spirit, calling the evil-hating emotion of the spirit trouble, because, as it seems, there was no other word he could use. And it certainly seems as though the emotion of the Godhead, intolerant of the restraint of the flesh, did really bring about a slight shuddering and an apparent condition of disturbance, exhibiting the outward signs of anger, doubtless similar to what is recorded also at the raising of Lazarus, where we read that Jesus went to the tomb groaning, or moved with indignation, in himself. For just as in that passage Christ's stern menace against death is called groaning, even so here also his emotion against the impious traitor is indicated by the word trouble. And good cause he had to be troubled, in indignation at the stubborn wickedness of Judas. For what could be the ultimate end of the impiety of one who, although in common with the other disciples he was the recipient of super-excellent honors and enrolled among the elect, yet was persuaded by a little silver to relinquish all his love to Christ? and, while eating his bread, lifted up his heel against him. A man who regarded neither honor nor fame, neither the law of love nor the reverence due to Christ as God, nor any other of the just claims that were laid upon him, but who, with his eyes fixed only on the loathsome pieces of money that were to be the result of his bargain with the Jews, sold his own soul irrecoverably for those few coins and betrayed the innocent and righteous blood into the hands of polluted murderers. Most reasonable was the plea Jesus had for being troubled. And the reproof comes home to them in all its sternness, affecting indeed in its special significance one person only of the twelve, but enabling them all in a remarkable manner to realize the extreme horror of the accusation laid and all but loudly imploring each one among the listeners to strictly guard his own soul, lest by any means it should be unwarily caught in such fatal snares, and fall a foolish prey to the cruel wiles of the devil. Instructive, therefore, was the force of the reproofs, the disregard of which by the traitor's heart left him to the unchecked influence of his own ambitions. Most emphatically, then, Christ adds the words, one of you shall betray me. Hereby he either speaks to abrade the ingratitude of the daring traitor, or indicates the vastness of the wickedness of the devil, which could even carry off one of the apostles themselves. 22. 
The disciples therefore looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Terror and dread at once thrilled the hearts of the disciples, and they glanced one at another, being filled with a twofold alarm at the words uttered. For each one, as was natural, on reviewing the state of his own individual soul, was weighed down with grievous fear. And furthermore, they all felt the agony, no less severe, which was produced by the suspicion that rested on them all in common. For they are well assured that the words spoken will be fully verified. They know that the saying of the Saviour could not pass away unfulfilled and yet they reckon it as a terrible and unbearable misery that any one of those numbered among the disciples should have relapsed into such a depth of impiety. This leads them each one to examine his own conscience, and to look around him in bewildered inquiry as to who it is to whose share the lot of perdition is to fall wondering much whence or how satan will obtain such power as to steal away the allegiance of one even of christ's own peculiar companions twenty three twenty four twenty five twenty six there was at the table reclining in jesus bosom one of his disciples whom jesus loved simon peter therefore beckoneth to him to ask who it might be of whom he spake and he, leaning back as he was, on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus therefore answereth, He it is to whom I shall give the sop when I have dipped it. We might naturally be filled with admiration, and especially from this further instance, at the zealous ardor displayed by the holy disciples in their love to God, and at the excessive strictness of their devotion. For being unable of themselves to know the guilty person, whoever he might be, and refusing also to place confidence in the uncertainties of deceitful conjectures, they again give vent to their curiosity by questions, and make one who was preeminent among them, I mean, Peter, the representative of their eagerness to learn the truth. Peter shrinks from putting the question by his own mouth and entrust the interrogation to him who is reclining next to Christ, and who is beloved for his more conspicuous purity. I mean John, the author of the book before us, who, in speaking of himself as beloved by Christ, has concealed his own name, burying it in silence, lest he might seem to any to be making a boastful display. For the mind of the saints is untainted by any such ambition and so, turning himself gently towards his master, in a secret whisper he sought to learn who was to be the son of perdition. But the Saviour vouchsafes to him no further indication of the fact, save what had been proclaimed of old by the voice of the prophet in the words, He that eateth my bread did magnify himself contemptuously against me and when he has dipped the sop he gives it to judas thereby showing who it was that was eating his bread and he thus both removes the fear felt by the holy disciples and seems to remind them of another prophecy that runs thus but it was even thou o my companion my guide and mine own familiar friend eating at the same board who didst make my food sweet to me we walked in the house of God as friends. 
for there was a time when even the traitor himself was a companion and a familiar friend to the Saviour, eating at the same board with him, and sharing in everything that is reckoned to denote true discipleship, inasmuch as he had his allotted portion among the other holy disciples, who, with their whole lives devoted to the Saviour, traversing in his company the length and breadth of Judea, were zealous attendants on him in all his mighty works, and hastened on all occasions to do whatever might redound to his honor and glory. And yet this familiar friend and companion exchanged the grateful service owed to one who had so honored him for slavery to disgraceful passions. Notice again how effectually the very wise evangelist spurs us on to a desire to live, as far as possible, in the manner most accordant with reason, and to train up the keenness of our intellectual powers so as to be able, and that with perfect ease, to act in obedience to the divine intentions, and to endeavor, as far as in us lies, to thoroughly fulfill the conditions of the vision of God. He tells us that he was himself the object of special honor and love on the part of Christ our Savior, so as even to recline next him, actually in the very bosom of the Lord, deeming this circumstance a token of his surpassing affection towards him. Nearest, therefore, to God, and as it were in the highest place in his honor, will most especially be those whose heart is pure. And to them also the Saviour himself assigns conspicuous honor when he says that the pure in heart shall be blessed, for they shall see God and we shall bring forward, as evidence of the truth of this saying, even this very wise evangelist himself. For he has seen the glory of Christ, according to his own words. For he says, I beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. For surely not with bodily eyes could anyone gaze at the nature of him who to every creature is absolutely invisible. For according to the Saviour's words, No man hath seen the Father, save he which is from God, that is, the Son. He hath seen the Father. To those, however, who keep their mind untainted by worldly stain, and freed from vain imagination, whose only concern is with his life, it seems that Christ reveals his own peculiar glory by a subtle and perhaps incomprehensible process, thereby showing forth also the glory of the Father. For it must have been with this meaning that he said, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. 27. So when he had dipped the sop, he giveth it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, and after the sop, Satan entered into him. Most distinct was the token to mark the traitor that the Saviour showed to his own disciples. For when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to him, thereby making clearly evident who it was that did eat of his bread, and was now about to lift up his heel against him. Nevertheless, the very wise evangelist tells us that the guide and instigator of his impiety and accursed cruelty to Christ, and the deviser of the whole scheme, had rushed into the heart of the traitor, 
even that Satan and all his evil power had taken up his abode within him after the giving of the sop. And let no one suppose on the contrary that the sop was to the traitor the cause of his being possessed by Satan. For we shall not have so nearly reached the verge of madness, nor shall we even prove ourselves so bereft of proper intelligence as to suppose that such a gift could have afforded the evil one any pretext for an entrance. But we will rather say this, keeping our statement about the traitor well within the limits of the truth. Seeing that, although perfect love had been shown towards him, and nothing was in any way lacking of the things that are generally reckoned to imply a disposition to confer honor, he still clung fast to the same evil endeavors, never correcting by repentance his wicked thoughts, never turning his heart away from its ungodly designs, never weeping in bitter sorrow for the wickedness he had so much as dared to conceive, but still thirsting more and more to accomplish to the full his impious purpose, and so to be finally ruined by his own evil recklessness. Satan consequently entered into him, finding his heart ready and open, like a gate to receive him, unprotected by sobriety. And seeing that his mind was not locked against him, but rather already inflamed with a willingness to do whatsoever he might wish and suggest. And by searching thoroughly the inspired scripture, we shall find this to be an accustomed habit, as we may say, of the evil one. He at the beginning opens his attack by trying the hearts of those who worship God, first of all sowing the seed of evil questionings, and inciting us with the bait of paltry pleasures to false steps of various kinds. And he above all most violently assaults us at any point where he sees we have already suffered and been vanquished before. For he always uses somehow our own weakness as an auxiliary to his wicked devices, and employs again the passion which previously injured our soul. Thus, for example, he harasses one man perhaps with violent assaults through the senses, which become the most depraved incentives to fleshly pleasures. Whereas in the case of another who is overcome by base gains, to make a profit of unholy wealth seems somehow held up to honor as the best thing possible. Whenever, therefore, he makes war against us, he uses as an auxiliary force the passion that has before held sway in warring against us, and by its agency he ever devises the scheme of our perdition. For just as a commander, skilled in generalship, when laying siege to a city, hastens with all speed and by every device to attack the weakened parts of the wall, thither ordering his battering engines to be brought into action, well knowing that in those quarters the capture will be easy. Even so, methinks Satan, when intending to lay siege to a human soul, sets to work at its weakest part, thinking that he will by this means bring it into easy subjection, especially when he sees it receiving no assistance from those helps by which it is likely the passion would be defeated such as noble emotions, provocations to manly courage, suggestions to devotion, and the mystic Eucharist. For this most of all is effective as an antidote to the murderous poison of the devil. 
Therefore it happened that the traitor was not dismayed at rebukes uttered as yet quietly and secretly, nor did he even regard the invincible might of love, nor honor and glory and grace, nor the gift that he received from Christ. But hurrying on, without pausing to reflect or checking himself for a moment, his eyes fixed on that, and that alone, which had proved too strong for him once before, I mean the curse of avarice. He was now finally ensnared, and fell to utter ruin. For no longer has he Satan merely as a counsellor, but he takes him now to be master of his whole heart, and absolute dominator of his thoughts, who was at first merely an adviser who whispered suggestions. For Satan entered into him, according to the language of the gospel. We must therefore be on our guard against, and very carefully avoid, the harm that may result from the first approaches of evil, and we ought as a duty to remember him who said, If the spirit of the powerful one rise up against thee, leave not thy place, for a remedy will keep in check great sins. For necessity would compel us again to grant authority over our thoughts to the spirit of the powerful one, if there is not in us the power to resist altogether, still we are at any rate able to check a growing impulse at the outset, and not to allow it to take deep root by lazily yielding and giving way to it. Rather we should hasten to extirpate it, as the germ of bitterness, desiring that our mind should be free from its vexations. Else we must surely know that Satan will prevail little by little through continual flattery and we shall probably experience something like what the psalmist did, who says, Before I was humbled, I went wrong. For before we suffer the full effect of the sin, we go astray in yielding assent to evil thoughts, cherishing them with approval, and so by this means giving Satan a place of access. And the case of the traitor will be to us a type and example of the whole matter. End of Introduction Part 3